Today's scripture is from Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us to, of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias so he was added to the 11 apostles all right Ooh, ah. oh yeah I, am I a robot check okay thank you Heather very good all right so um moving right along in the book of Acts normally um I would this week be speaking on baptism and nothing else but baptism simply because there's a baptism service in two weeks. And so every year on this week, I speak on baptism. And I was going to do that. And then I thought, you know what? Why don't I just talk about both? Because I want to keep going to the book of Acts. We started Acts last week. And I want to keep going. I want to keep trucking. And I realized there's not all that much going on in this passage. So I somehow turned this into a baptism sermon. Telling you. Okay. Now, but like, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about some of the things here. I'm going to talk about basically the three things that are going on in this passage. I'll talk about what they are. Um, and, uh, and we're going to work our way through sort of what it, what it means to like to choose these, these new leaders uh, in the apostolic tradition. Um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And I'm going to talk about the community because um, there's a passage in here that, that talks about how many people were gathered. Maybe you heard that, and, and, and it mentions a, a, a vast amount of people that are gathered there. Normally, we think it's just this small little crowd. And so we're going to do a few things today. Um, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about sort of this in-between time that they're in. We're going to talk about what they were doing. We're going to talk about their choosing their new apostolic leader and why and what they're looking for. Um, and then we're going to talk about sort of adoption and inclusion into the family. What does that look like? What did that look like for them? What does it look like for us? So uh, let's pray, and then let's, let's do this, shall we? Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for everything that you are uh, that you are doing in our midst. Thank you that you have gathered all these people here today. I pray that um, we would all listen for you, that we would all be open to what it is that you are are calling us towards, that what you want us to see and what you want us to do, how you want us to respond. And um, there's so much pain and suffering in our world, um, yet there's so much beauty and so much to celebrate. And I pray that. Uh, um, we would learn to find joy in it all, that we would find meaning and purpose in it all. Um, when there's pain and suffering, help us to find meaning in the restoration of it all. When there's joy, help us to find meaning and purpose in the celebration of, of the good things that you've brought into our lives. Let us see each other. Let us recognize each other as our brothers and sisters. Let us be present here um, and only here. Let us let our minds not be wandering anywhere else today. Let us be here pondering what you have for us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, um, so this is the start of a new community. Last week, we talked about the ascension and what this means. Um, Jesus has not left. It's not the absence of Jesus. It's the ascension of Jesus. He has sat down now on the, the throne of the universe. He's now sitting at the desk in the Oval Office of the universe. Like, he's in charge. Jesus is king. And this is what the people um, who followed Jesus now recognize. No king but Jesus, no Lord but Jesus. Um, and he has told them, I want you to go back and I want you to gather and I want you to wait. And I'm sending you a guide and a spirit. We're going to talk about the guide and the spirit and all this in a, in a couple of weeks here. Um, today, I'm, I'm just sort of going to focus on, on what they're doing here because this is 10 days that they spent here. And we don't have a lot of record of what they were doing in the 10 days. All we have for this 10 days is this right here. Um, we have a few hints of what they're doing. First off, they're having prayer vigils. It says they're constantly gathering and praying together. It says that they are, that Peter stands up and gives this big speech. And as this book goes on, that's what Peter's going to do. He's the speech guy. He's going to stand up and, and, and give speeches. And in a couple of weeks, um, we're going to sort of, on November 1st, we're going we're, we're to gather here and display for you sort of what this looks like when the early church would receive a letter what it would feel like to hear it read out loud, okay? So we're going to talk about these speeches in a little bit and what the purpose of all this is, because he does them a lot. Um, and then um, we also know that they were, they had to, they gathered for the election of Matthias. Um, they had to find someone to replace Judas, who they've given us a little too much information about him here, but um, he's not with them anymore. Um, he, he used the money to buy a field, and he killed himself in that field. And it's, it's very incredibly descriptive. Um, and so here's the thing. Jesus had 12 inner disciples, and we've talked a lot about this. And then he had 72 outer ring of disciples. And then there was about 500 disciples around that. And oftentimes, these disciples are with him wherever he goes, not just the 12. We like to picture Jesus just sitting at a table with the 12, apparently all on one side of the table. Um, and we like to picture... This is how they were, and this is how they're gathering, and it's just Jesus and 12 people, but it wasn't. Um, lots of people were with Jesus, and they made some requirements if they're going to replace uh, Judas, because they have to replace Judas, because they have to have 12, and the reason they have to have 12 is because one of the things that Jesus, his big message was, is, is um, we are reforming Israel. Israel had 12 tribes um, based upon the 12 sons of a man named Israel, um, and so Jesus is choosing four, uh, 12 boys, um, not just because he wants boys in leadership, but simply because he wants 12 to represent Israel and the sons of Israel. 
Uh, and so he's going to gather them all together. One is now missing. There needs to be one more. Because what Christianity is, is the opening up of Israel, the expanding of Israel. It's not the ending of Israel. Um, it's not the cessation of Israel and then suddenly the, the, the end of Judaism and the start of Christianity. It is the opening of, of Israel and now God's people um, are Gentiles as well. All who, who believe on the name of the Lord shall be saved, not just Israel. That's the emphasis on that verse, by the way. Um, so they're going to have to pick some new leaders, but how are they going to do this? How are they going to decide who gets to be one of the apostles? Well, they made some requirements. Uh, we have a couple of them here. It says, it is necessary to choose uh, one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us. So they want somebody that was there, that traveled with them the whole time. And it's funny because these two guys aren't mentioned anywhere else. But they were there in the background, gathering information and following and learning and watching. Um, beginning from John's baptism uh, to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So he, he, was, they, he was with them from the time that, that John baptized Jesus up until the time that Jesus was taken up. Um, uh, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Um, so it also has to be somebody who witnessed the resurrected Christ. So this is what they're looking for. Um, and, and we don't know why it came down to these two. We know there was a lot more. We'll talk about some of them. Um, there was a lot more than just these two. But for some reason, these two men floated to the top as possible replacements for Judas. Um, and so there's a process here. It says they nominated two men, Joseph called Bar Bar uh, Barsabbas, also known as Justice, so three names for whatever reason, and Matthias, Mr. One Name. Uh, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas, which Judas left uh, to go where he belongs. Shade, throwing shade. Uh, I, I just noticed that this morning, honestly. I just noticed that one. You read the Bible again sometimes, you're like, oh, okay. Jeez, okay, attitude. Now, uh, then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, uh, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Okay, so what is this? They're doing something called casting lots. Um, the lots look like a, a maybe like this. This is what we're thinking that they look like. Um, this is what they reproduce today. Um, the lots are, casting lots is something that would do all through the Old Testament uh, to sort of get answers from God. I know what you're thinking. It's weird. Um, and they would take these, and they sort of had a binary thing. Like, you could apparently get four answers, like both up, both down, one up, one down. Um, and so you could put, like, different answers out there, and you pray to God, and then you cast lots, and you look at its space. You're rolling the dice. That's what you're doing. Um, this is how they chose the uh, leaders of a 2,000-year-old Christian movement. They rolled dice. Um, but here's the thing. They had been doing this since the very beginning. And this is actually the very last time they will ever do this. Because they believe that the Spirit of God, you can read all about the times that, that they're casting lots, and they're all very fascinating. They spend time in prayer, and, and they say, God, we trust you. We trust that this is going to be exactly what you want us to do. We have no other way of making this decision. Both these men are qualified. Um, both of them were there. You know their hearts. And here we go. Right? Like, that's... That's what they're doing. Um, and they did it. And this is the last time they will ever cast lots because now um, we're about to enter the time of Pentecost where the Spirit will join them um, and speak to them. Uh, so um, this happens, and these men are chosen here. Now, uh, okay. So the thing people oftentimes don't realize is, is, is we picture the first gathering of these people in the upper room. We picture it just being them. 
And we picture like it's a small group of people because it's a room. You know, it's not like a cathedral. It's a room, and they're all there, and they're gathering, and they're waiting, and they're praying. And they're in this in-between time because they have just exited what they, what they would call all through the Old Testament in the Gospels, what you will see called the present age. The present age is, is, is what they call it. Uh, he's going to reference it in chapter 2 as well, the present age. And they believe they have just left the present age, and they have just stepped into what's called the age to come, or the age that is to come. Um, it is the second half of God's plan. It is the establishment of the kingdom in this world, um, and they are here for 10 days in this sort of no man's land where they don't even know what to do, so they're gathering and they're praying. And it's not just them. Look at what it says. Uh, they all join together constantly in prayer um, along with um, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Jesus' family is there. Jesus' brothers and mother, they're there. They're gathered together. His, his siblings were convinced that he was divine. Think about that. Could you do that? No. no. Okay. Um, uh, the mother of Jesus with his brothers. Uh, and in those days, Peter stood up among the believers. And here he goes. He's going to give a big speech. But it says this. It says a group numbering about 120. 120 people. This isn't 12 people plus RSVP friends. This is 120 people gathered in a room. That's larger than Watermark was for like eight years when we started. Like this is a, this is a big group of people. Um, and they're there, and they're waiting. Um, and it's funny because a lot of them had followed Jesus since the very beginning. A lot of them were there, and they saw they were likely there at the ascension, and they're believers. So they saw Jesus, and they heard Jesus speak, and they believed the things he said. They believe he's the Messiah, and so they're gathered here together. And, and here's the thing. It's not just them. There's a lot more. Paul mentions some people that very well may well have been in this room as well. And at, at the end of uh, Romans 16, there's this long list of people, which we're going to go through and talk about them when we get to the book of Romans. But Paul mentions this, uh, this man and this woman. Her name is um, Andronicus. His name is Andronicus. Her name is Junia. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. By the way, her name is Junia. Uh, for about 1,900 years, people called her Junius which is a man's name, um, and in 1979, it was, fin- 79. it was finally proven that it's a woman and that she was an apostle and that her name is Junia and that there was not a single human being for the first century and a half named Junius. It was a name that was invented by somebody in the second century. This was a woman, and she was an apostle and a leader in the church. She saw the resurrected Jesus and heard him speak. Um, and Paul says, not only is she apostle, uh, but she is outstanding. They are outstanding amongst the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So they knew Jesus before Paul did. They likely taught Paul the things that he knows. And by the way, um, if Junia, the woman Junia, was an apostle, the jig is up. That's it. The jig is up. Women in leadership in the early church. Anyways, let's keep moving. Um, okay, so uh, there's other people who were there who are qualified. We don't know why these ones are chosen, but there's this whole beautiful picture of these early Christians who followed Jesus, and, and then, and then they, he ascended to the throne, and they're there. They're waiting, and they're, they're waiting for guidance um, and the community that they're having, they're gathering and they're praying together and they're, we're going to get to what they were doing. They were sharing everything in common and living this whole different life um, from anybody else. We have um, these beautiful writings here. Let me, let me I'll, I'll have some sketches I drew. Four dudes. One of them's glowing. Guess who that is? We'll get there. Um, now, um, I was reading this week and this is what's going on in my brain when I read. Um, you'll see. Um, 
And I was reading this week, and I was reading the words of, of Irenaeus. There's this guy, Irenaeus. He was the, um, the bishop, in a, uh, he's a pastor of a church in Lyon, France, um, in about 117, I think. Um, and he's there, and he's writing um, the things that he learned from a man named Polycarp. So Polycarp taught Irenaeus, um, and... Irenaeus grew up in the church of Polycarp as a young boy and was raised to like know the thing. And, and he was, he was ta- taught the apostolic traditions and the, the rule of faith and how, um, how we are to live in light of what we see in Jesus. And so Polycarp also tells Irenaeus, he's like, when I was young, I sat, just like you're sitting now, I sat at the feet of a man named John. And this man, John, is the one who wrote the book, the Gospel of John, and possibly wrote the book of Revelation. And John... Um, followed Jesus for three years and got to know him and, and served him. And, and, and there's, there's a point at which in Polycarp's, uh, in Irenaeus' writings, this gets confusing, in Irenaeus' writings, he's writing about Polycarp talking about sitting at the feet of John and what it was like to hear John talk about Jesus and how John's face would just light up and would just, he would tell all these other things that we don't even have records of and just tell these beautiful stories about what it was like to live with Jesus and to follow Jesus and to serve alongside, uh, alongside Jesus. And Irenaeus says, when Polycarp told these stories about hearing this from John, Polycarp's face would light up the same way. There's this beautiful tradition of the authority that we know, the things that we know in the scriptures come directly from the people who followed Jesus. And there were rules about whether or not you could be an apostle. You had to know Jesus, follow Jesus. You had to have been there and seen it because there's no other way you could get there mentally. You can't just think yourself and you had to be there and you had to see it. And this passes on to John and passes on to Polycarp and it passes on to Irenaeus and it passes on farther and farther and farther. And, and like we talked about a few weeks ago, what, what we have in the scriptures, there was no group of people gathering around saying, okay, we're gonna canonize the Bible, um, gather them all up, Gospel of Thomas, that's out, Gospel of Philip, that's out. Nobody was doing this. The authority of the early church in the scriptures always, without even debating it, always came from the eyewitness events. In the ancient world, the eyewitnesses who were there, who told the stories, that's what they wanted to hear, and they wanted to gather them together. And this is how we gathered the scriptures together. There came a point when everyone had gathered all of the eyewitness accounts, and they said, here it is. Here's everything that we have. And it is the same thing that we have now. And these things are passed down in apostolic tradition, one after the other after the other. And this is why it was so strong in the debate against the Gnostics and the Montanists and um, all of the different movements that popped up. And it was the rule of faith that kept it all together, that was passed down from the apostles. And we're witnessing the very first sort of initiation of this. I think it's beautiful. Um, So, um, but let's keep moving. So Luke says, um, Luke, the author of Acts, says that that they were also, as they gathered, they spent a lot of time, a lot of these 10 days in prayer. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, and with his brothers. So there's a word here I wanted to focus on, though, and we're going to sort of jump off from this point. The word is, uh, they all joined together. And that word, depending on what translation you're using, and they're all reliable, um, 
there's, there's different ways it's going to be used. Uh, some translate it joined together. Some translate it in one accord. I think the ESV actually uses the word unity, which I like. Um, and then, and then um, faithfulness is another way. So it's not just this one thing. It's not just they're in a room together. Uh, there's this heavy connotation that they are, they are one people. They are of one mind, and they are faithful to each other, and they are joined together. Um, they're in one accord, and there's a sense a strong sense of unity. And here's the thing. Every one of these 120 plus people um, came from other households. Now, a household in the ancient world is a big deal. A household was what you wanted to be a part of. Um, the ancient family was not like families of today, what we call the nuclear family. The first century family centered around uh, a man that they called the, the, um, the patrifamilia, and he sort of owned everyone in the house. It was a very um, patriarchal society. So he uh, like, owned his wife, and he owned her slaves and, and his children and, and his slaves, and, and he owned everybody. But here's how it works. Basically, everyone would, would, would work for the glory of the Lord, the curios, the patrifamilia, and everyone's working for the glory of this Lord. And if that Lord's sort of honor went up by them serving him in this way, then the whole family was lifted up. As, as one was raised up, they were all lifted up in society, and other opportunities would open up to them. So um, you were loyal and faithful to your household and your family. There's, and, and everyone wanted to be a, a part of a family. There's this little house in Pompeii that you can go visit where when the volcano erupted and buried everything right as it was, there was apparently two men who were living together there who were um, carpenters uh, and woodworkers, and they weren't much. They were poor, but they were a household. They, they were like, no, we, we are a household, and they were probably looking for other people to join them as well so that they could move up in society and, and become this household. It wasn't this, they weren't linked together based upon love and romance. It was, it was all, most of the time, it was this joining together of, of uh, this commitment to like, we're going to move through this together, five, six, ten of us, and they would become a household. And the funny thing is, this is what you see in the church. It was this surrogate household. Everyone came from these other households where they had these other lords. Um, they had their own lords and they worshiped their own gods and there were these statues there, but their participation in this new family was exclusive. Those in Christ acknowledged no other gods and no other lords. When they were in the church, when they gathered in the church, they were separate from their, they didn't talk about their other lords, their other gods, none of that. When they were in the church, they were together and they were in Christ and they were equals. No matter what role or part they played in their house where they came from, in their household. If they came from a household that had both high, there were households that had high statuses, low statuses, um, and, and the treatments of each other centered around honor one possessed or didn't possess, it didn't exist in the church. Um, Maybe the house where they came from, maybe you were just like a lowly slave and you were beaten regularly and, and you were paid nothing, or maybe you were older and you were a slave your whole life, but now you're sort of crippled and decrepit and, and, and you can't work anymore, so your master has kicked you out because you no longer make money uh, for the household. You no longer do anything for the household, and so he kicked you out. Now you're living on the streets and you're probably starving to death, and so maybe you are the head of a household and you have come to be very intrigued by this gathering of Christians. Maybe you are the wife of someone in a household like, like women like, um, like women like Joanna were. Um, and you'd gather and you would all walk into this room together, Jews and Gentiles, and you'd gather together and you would be something different. You would collectively be equals, a household serving one Lord, living for the glory of the Lord. Perhaps you've heard this language in the scriptures. And as the Lord's name was made great and lifted up, um, the family became stronger and greater, 
and it grew. Um, and in this way, they were a surrogate family from everything else happening in the world. And they lived a, a, a life that was this word I've been using lately, Christoform, this, this, this Christoform idea. It's, they lived a life collectively that was shaped by Jesus. When they would tell the story of Jesus, he was, he was reigning on high. He was on the throne. And there, there came a time when he decided to enter into our story. And so he threw off his, uh, his glory and all of his honor, and he entered into this poor family and was born into a stable, not in a palace. The king was born in a stable, and he lived among an oppressed people. And he, um, he spent his time with rejects and with outcasts in society. And like this is the story they tell. And, and, and they tell this to each other so that they can realize whoever in this room feels like they have some kind of status and power and wealth and, and privilege, and what, all, none of that matters in this space. We are here together looking each other in the eye as equals, as brothers and sisters. Even the leader of the room, the, the bishop or the pastor, we're all equals. And there is no one lording over everyone else. Instead, the higher up they are, the actually the more they're serving and bending down to wash your feet. And this is how they lived. And they would gather and they would say, hey, so who needs money for food? Who needs this? Who needs that? We are a household. And this is how the household is made great. It was a whole other way of existing in the world. And this is a big group of people. And this is how they were striving to live. And this is dangerous in the ancient world where everybody cared about status except for, apparently except for the Christians. And so the question is, how do you get into this family? How do you do it? How do you get in? What made somebody transfer ownership from one family to another? And they would talk about this. Well, the answer was very simple. You must be born again. What does this mean, born again? This is not a new phrase that the Christians made up. This is not a phrase that Jesus made up when he said it uh, to the Jewish men. This is an ancient idea that was pretty ubiquitous. Um, and basically the way this worked was this. Uh, when you were a member of another household and you had either been kicked out or you were being hired into another household or sold, you would oftentimes, they would, they would take you down to a, a body of what's called living water. When, when you see in the scriptures living water, that means a water that comes from a spring or that is rushing like a river. Um, and you would go down into the living water, and the whole family would gather there. And you would go into the water, and they would immerse you into the water. You would take off all of your clothes and throw them away, and you would be immersed into the water, and you'd come out, and they would give you some jewelry, a nose ring, or some earrings, and they would give you new clothes, and they would give you a new name. And it was as if you had just been born into this family. It's called baptism. That is how you were brought in. The early Christians practiced this, as well, because they were a surrogate family. This is a baptismal in the middle of a city of Ephesus, where um, John actually was the pastor of the Johannian church, and where um, men like Timothy pastored. Um, so First and Second Timothy are written to the church in this city, and this is um, a later, a little later baptismal. And they would enter in one side. They would remove all their clothing, and they would enter in one side, and they would be baptized by the bishop. And they would come up, and they would come out this side, and they would receive new clothes, and they would do this on Easter, once a year. And the water, there were certain rules you can read about them in the, in the early church manual dedicated. The water had to be freezing cold, and we don't do that anymore. Um, all these things that, that took, we don't, we don't do it naked either. Um, all these things that, that you would do, um, and this for the church actually took the place of the Jewish community, uh, which was the, the Jewish tradition, which was when you entered into the community, you were circumcised. So they changed it. We're like, let's just baptize people. Um, so 
This tradition has been carried on now for 2,000 years. When you enter into um, the water, this is what's happening. Uh, several things. Um, first off, it's your birthing ceremony. It is, it is you um, belonging to the community of God's people, to the family of God. It is you recognizing them as your brothers and sisters. It is them recognizing you as their brother or their sister. Um, it also meant there was this allegiance to the person that you baptized. Paul writes about this. In the ancient world, the person who baptized you, the, the Lord or whatever, is the person in that house. You would be baptized by like the, the, the Lord in the house. And now you are allegiant to that, uh, that leader. Um, the word allegiance is, again, the Greek word pistis, which means faith. It also means allegiance to a king or a lord. Um, and this is the one you were allegiant to, the one who baptized you and who brought you through your new birth into this house. Paul writes um, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, he says, one of you says, I follow Paul, and the other, I follow Paulos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he says, he says, look, in the church, this is not how this works. You are not allegiant to the one who baptized you. You are being baptized by the body of Christ. This is the one you are allegiant to. And then he says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you, except for Crispus and Gaius. So, <laughs> so no one, I just, I like to read it with a little bit. Okay, so, so no one can say that you are baptized in my name. And from this point on, Paul didn't baptize anyone because Paul didn't want anyone being a follower of his. He wanted everyone to be a follower of Christ and allegiance to their church and to the family, not just their church, like their, I mean, yes, their local gathering, but the church at large. The churches used to be connected. The pastors gathered and they led flocks together and they knew each other and they all worked together. Um, this is what you were allegiant to, the kingdom of God. It was this whole new thing. It was this way that you would look at other people and, and you would affirm, like it was the affirmation of the church that you are one of us, you are an equal, you are a brother and a sister. And baptism was also how you looked at them and you said, I'm in, I'm a part of this revolution, I am with you, I, I'm, I'm one of you. And it had nothing to do with, with words. It wasn't about, look at this doctrinal statement, do you agree? Great. You're one of us. It was not about this because faith, spirituality requires a physical response. It does. We are a, a emotional people, a physical people, a spiritual people. We have all these parts and they move together towards one thing. And so the call was not to say, hey, do you believe this? Yeah, you're in. No, the call was to say, um, do you want in? Yes, I want in. Well, you should be born again. You should be baptized. Let's go down to the river and let's baptize you and get you in because you're with us. It was, it was for the Christian community, this togetherness, this one accordness, it came not just from being under the authority of some new master or Lord. It came from receiving sort of a whole new identity. So there was a ceremony. There was a ritual. Baptism, and I want you to pay attention to this part. Baptism does not determine one's eternal fate but instead, it, is, it, it sort of signifies their current identity and their inclusion in the people of God, okay? These are two different things. 
Baptism is not about some future later thing. Baptism is about now. There's these new things happening in the world. Do you know what the Christians would go on to do? They would go on because of their understanding of, of who Jesus was and how Jesus lived and how he poured himself out for the world around him. The early Christians went on to invent things like hospitals and public schools and, and hospices. And they invented things like healthcare and they invented orphanages and widow, uh, like, like ministries for widows and and homeless ministries. And these are the kinds of things that they did. There came a point in history where the secular governments kind of said, okay, we're gonna take this from here and you guys can go pray your prayers and do your right, ritual rites. And, and, and from now we got this and we're gonna, we're gonna run the, all of this, you know, these public things and the hospitals and the schools. and the, We've got this, you go on and do your little thing. But these, these things would not have existed without this group of people. They invented these things and they brought them into the world and said, the world doesn't have to be like it is. It can be just. It can be forgiving and merciful. It can be life-giving for so many people who have no way to provide for themselves. The world doesn't have to be like this. And you know what? The world at some point saw it and said, you're right. Give us what you have. But not all of it, just little pieces of it. That's a step. I, I, I talk to people sometimes who, and I felt like this. I remember I was walking through the city of Chicago like about, about uh, like, like a year and a half ago. I was walking through the city of Chicago, and I'm just looking around, and I had this feeling, this wave kind of come over me like, can this really all be made whole again? And I'm looking around and there's literally people, homeless people with these huge gaping wounds. And I saw a family with their little toddler sleep, asleep on the, on the side of the road and, and, and people yelling and screaming and, 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 and there's just, and you're walking around and you're like, can this? And I'm looking at the opulence in, in the middle of all of it. Can this really be changed, or is this some kind of pipe dream that we're all doing? And I went back to my, like, to my cohort, the people that I studied the scriptures with, and I was talking to them, they're like, they're like, and they sort of reminded, like, look, all the good things that you see have happened in society because of the Christians at the very beginning. The world is very different now, and God is moving, and God is working, and we will keep pushing, and one day the veil will be lifted, and everyone will realize that Jesus is indeed Lord. And until that day, us, the kingdom of God, will keep striving and inviting people in and baptizing new people into the movement and setting them out to, to, to do this work with us. This is what they were up to. There comes a moment here in a second where Peter, uh, Stephen, sorry, Peter is giving another big speech and he tells the whole story of Jesus from He's, he's talking to a group of Jews, and he tells the story from, from uh, the, the, the beginning of Jesus' life to the end, and he connects it all the way back to, to Israel, and he's speaking to Israelites, um, and, he, and he tells the story, and suddenly they, there's this response when he gets to the end, and they awaken to the idea that Jesus is their king, the one they've been waiting for, the one who's going to change everything, and they respond, and it says, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter, and, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What should we do? In light of what we have just heard, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That's what you should join. In other words, like they knew what this meant. Join us. Turn your back on, on these idols and these gods that you have been chasing in this meaningless rat race. They are offering you nothing. and We are offering you the restoration of the cosmos to God. Join us. 
as we, as, as we move forward and, and plant the kingdom of God and fight for justice and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation of all things and the salvation of every soul. Let's strive for this. And so he calls out, he says, and he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I'm going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Um, and the significance of all of this. But this is what baptism was. It was for all these people who it was not working. Like they were a part of this religion and their, their religious leaders had turned on them and oppressed them and their households were oppressing them and, and Rome was there and the kingdom was not coming. And it was becoming obvious to them that what we're doing is not working. Things are getting worse and worse and worse because we're striving under the power of these human kings. We need a different king. And when something is not working, let's just, I mean, bring this down to a micro level in your own lives. When something is not working, you change it. You don't just say some words and hope it gets better. You, you change it. You, when it's soul destroying, it's crushing your spirit, you break it off, you burn the letters, you cut your hair, and you take up CrossFit, and you do anything. You move across, whatever, you just start a new thing. Like, you're like, no, I'm doing a physical thing. Like, I'm not going. And somebody disappears, and they come in six months later, and they're a totally different person. And you're like, well, you made some changes. I'm really proud of you. And they're healthy and they're glowing. And you're like, I just, I, I changed everything. And I turned my back on my old life. And I've started a new one. And I've got this family now. And it's beautiful. And things are good. This is what, on so many levels, the spiritual level, the kingdom level, the political level, this is what the early Christians were doing, centered around this person of Christ. And you know what happens when you don't, when you just say some idea, you just nod your head in affirmation of some ideas, that doesn't change your life. There has to be a ritual. There has to be a ceremony, and they knew this. Um, do you know what happens when you, don't, when you don't bury the things in your life, when you don't make it public, when you don't have a ritual? Um, so there's this, I've told this story before. There's this theologian that I was reading um, about six or seven years ago, his, his name was, was Friedrich Buchner. Um, and here's a picture of him and his father on the cover of his book, The Sacred Journey. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of his, how he was raised and what he came to know about God. And he's a theologian. Um, and he says that, he, he talks about the day, when he, one day when he was 11 years old, the day that his father died. He was 11 years old. And he says that um, he was playing a board game with his brother in his bedroom in the morning. Early in the morning, it was still dark. And, and he says his father walked in and, and walked in the door when he looked at him and he smiled. And then he, and he walked out. He says, my dad, he remembers everything. He says, my dad was wearing a, a gray pair of slacks and a maroon sweater and he smiled at me and he waved and then he walked out to the garage and he turned on the car and sat in the car and killed himself. And there was no, as an 11-year-old, there was no way to process it. And he didn't know what to do. And, and, and here's what he writes in the book. He says, there was no funeral because... On both my mother's and my father's side, there was no church connection of any kind, and the funerals were just simply not a part of the culture. Uh, and he was buried in a cemetery in Brooklyn, and I have no idea who, if anybody, was present. I only know that my mother and brothers and I were not. And there was no funeral to mark his death and put a period at the end, at the end of a sentence that had been his life. And he goes on to talk about the difficulty caused by this lack of closure, this lack of a period, an ending, and a burial. There was, there was no mechanism for moving past it, the, for his father ending in his mind. And so in his mind, his father never ended. He was just not present. And so there, 
he laments not having this ritual, and eventually in his adult life, he would go through the ritual. Um, and he connects it at some point to baptism, and he says, this is like, this is what a healthy ending is. A healthy ending contains, to put something away and to take up something new, it contains several elements. I'm going to give you two of them. Um, uh, first thing it needs is a gathering of community. It needs people gathering together to witness and to see that this person is making a change and a fresh start and they're starting over and that this is necessary for their life, both to affirm what was and what is now and to offer support, to witness the change in your life. And if you've ever tried to change anything in your life on your own and not told anybody about it, you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit smoking. I'm going to uh, start working out. I'm going to go on, I'm going to eat keto and I'm going to, all these things. And, and if you, and you don't tell anybody, I mean, there, if, if you don't tell anybody, you're not going to succeed because nobody knows you were doing anything. And when you fall back off the wagon, nobody's going to say anything because nobody knows. It takes, it takes community. That's why vegetarians are always telling you. They just want your help. Um, just want your help. That's all they want. Don't be a jerk. Um, like, you need to tell people. People need to see it. They need to be there. There needs to be a moment where you move from one thing to the next. And this is the gift that baptism is. It's this communal ritual because you need both witnesses and you need cheerleaders. You need people there to say, yes, we're with you. You're one of us. You're with us. We're with you. And together we will launch into this new existence. You also need a change of language. Your adjectives need to change from past to, to present tense. Um, instead of saying they are this, you say they were that. I, like Paul says, as were some of you, but you're not now. Um, as in our old life, our old self was crucified with him. Because baptism is two things. It's a funeral, but it's also a wedding. Somehow it's both. A funeral, it's a mechanism by which uh, we let go of our past, our broken old ways, and our life that we have outgrown, our old understanding. It's, it's a time when we put something away and we turn and we look into this new future that is different and maybe harder um, in, in whatever way. It's different. And we turn and we move in this direction. But there has to come a moment where we put that old way behind us. It's also a wedding. It's the embracing of a new commi a commitment to a new way, a new love, a new life, new ways of dwelling, new ways of being. Baptism is also confession that the old life is no more. It's this con confession to the world around you and your community that you're in. It's a proclamation that your new life has begun and you need their help. And, and it's their confession to you that they will be with you and drag you towards the sanctification that you desire. This whole different life. Like, it's not a great picture, but that's, I mean, it's ac accurate and adequate. Like, we are with each other crawling towards the cross of Christ, trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in this new world. What does that mean? And how do you, how do you commit to being brave and speaking about our king by yourself? You can't, you need, you need people standing with you so you can accomplish the word God has for you. And Paul says it best in Romans 6, 4. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you read these things, ponder them in the first century mindset of like, they know what baptism is. They all live in households. They all know what it means to change hands and change families and loyalties. We were buried therefore with him by baptism. That person, that loyalty that you had, it doesn't even exist anymore. Nobody's even looking at you saying, I can't believe you did this thing in the past. That person is gone. Literally, Martin Luther used to say when he baptized people, I kill you in the name of Jesus. Like you're, That's what he used to say. 
I'm not going to do that. Um, and, 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 but, but that's what it means. And it's this constant reminder. And when these feelings would creep back in, he would remind himself, you've been baptized. That person is gone. Um, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And that's sort of, that's sort of the picture. It was this one life, and now there's this other life. And he looks the same. And he's got some scars that he's walking with, but somehow he's powered by something else. Because apparently he's teleporting and walking through walls. Like, he's different. Like, he's not the same thing. He's part of something that is unique and different. Um, so this is the invitation. This is the part where, where I've explained all this to you. And, and we have lots of sermons on baptism on, on, uh, on iTunes. Every year I do like two or three of them. Um, I think this is what a lot of people need is a fresh start. This is our gift that we offer. Um, a seat at the table. An affirmation that we are with you. And we will walk through this with you. So maybe you're here and you need this kind of newness of life. You've been trying to redirect this old self to make it on your own and hiding your flaws and your true self. And, and what you need is, is, is confession and burial. Is a moment where, where we come together and say goodbye to this old way. Because new life requires burial. Baptism's big message is, okay, and before, I, uh, before I wrap it up, I want our communion servers. You guys can go ahead and take the elements and, and spread around the room. And if you're, do we have communion servers? Oh, man. Okay, good. We got a couple. Um, and uh, baptism, baptism's big message is very simple. Tomorrow does not have to be like today. Not for you. Not for your family. Not for the world, not for the country, not for anyone. That we are moving towards something together, the kingdom of God. No king but Jesus, no nation but his kingdom. And we believe, we have hope that this is the way forward. We believe our king is better than any king that is out. We've, we've heard everything they have to say and we are not convinced and we've seen what Jesus has done, and we've heard what Jesus has to say. And we have allegiance here. And so this is the way forward. If you would like to be baptized uh, in two weeks, I would love to talk to you. Um, I, there's, a, there's a list in the back that you can sign up on, um, and we'll reach out to you. There is a, uh, on the website on, on watermarktampa.com slash events, you can RSVP there. Uh, we'll reach out to you. Um, but if this is what you need, this is what we have for you. It is the gift of the church, newness of life. Um, and so with that, I'm going to close, and we're going to pray, and we're going to sing another song today, um, but first we're going to have communion, and there will be somebody from the prayer team up here if you would like to pray with them. I believe there will also be one in the back room as well um, if you need a little more private space. Um, but let's take a few minutes, and let's pray, and let's spend some time in repentance and take communion and then respond with one more song, shall we? And let's pray. Father, thank you. For, uh, for what you have offered us. Thank you for this new life that you have set out there, a new people existing in the world in a way that nobody else is existing. I pray that we would be brave enough to live in this way, to fully embrace it, that we would become more and more um, immersed in your kingdom as time goes on. Change us in the coming years, in the coming months and weeks and days. Continue to pull us forward. I lift up all those who are pondering, um, taking a step forward in their, in their faith and their connection to this ancient people of God. 
I pray that you would uh, push them forward. Let it be a life-changing event for them. Thank you, Father. I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.